And sometimes I say, I can't anymore. Do you know that feeling? It's just, it's a lot. It's hard to take in. Death is everywhere. And since that day that we invited death in, in Genesis 3, there have been two kingdoms at war with each other. The kingdom of sin and death and the kingdom of God battling for us. And Isaiah 25 stands as a beacon shining in that darkness to let us know that the war has been won. It's been decided. God wins. So the first five verses that we didn't read from this chapter, they praise God for his victory over the kingdom of sin and death, conceptualized as a fortified city, like a a stronghold. He says, you've made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. So Isaiah says that the, the kingdom of the ruthless, the kingdom of the oppressor, has been defeated by God. That's why our passage in, in uh, verse 6 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts. When we sang uh, in a mighty fortress, Lord Sabaoth, his name, and, and then all of us were like, what's Sabaoth? It's, it's, ho- it's Hebrew for hosts. It's armies. He's the Lord of armies. That's how he's introduced in this passage. And that's why it says, on this mountain. This mountain is referring back at the end of chapter 24 to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is Bible shorthand. It's Bible shorthand for Jerusalem, wholly conquered and under the reign and rule of God. In other words, Mount Zion looks forward to the church, the big C, not just our local church. Mount Zion refers to the saved people of God under the reign and rule of God. So it's a victory feast because there's been a kingdom overturned. The kingdom of death has been ruling ruthlessly for far too long. And now the Spirit promises through Isaiah, not just that he's defeated, but that the Lord himself will make for his people a victory feast. So we're introduced to God in this chapter, not just as the victor, not just as the Lord of hosts or armies, but also as the Lord of the feast. Why is that important? It's important because God's God's goal is not God in control. God's goal is God in control and you happy in him. Right? From Philippians that we've been studying the last eight or nine weeks, all our joy is wrapped up in God's glory. That's what he's about. That's why he sets us a feast after he wins the battle. It's not a given. When we see governments and regimes overturned in the world, they're often replaced by ones that are just as worse, just as bad or even worse, aren't they? And that's not the case with God. Isaiah wants us to know that God doesn't replace that tyrant death with more tyranny. He sets a feast. Yeah. Uh, He goes to great lengths, actually, with repetition in this verse to tell us God's not holding back anything from you. He's not just giving you food. He's making you an exquisite banquet of the best that he has to offer. Listen to this. Verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples 
a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Now, not all of you drink wine, and that's totally fine. One day we will, and it'll be great. He's saving it. (laughs) He's not drinking of it right now. He's waiting. I love that. It says, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. All people does not mean every single person without exclusion. It means all people without distinction. In other words, all kinds of people will be at this feast. This is a feast for rich, poor, black, white, Jew, Gentile, children, elderly. The table will be a very diverse table in every possible way. The more the merrier. I mean, in the Gospels, who did Jesus eat with? Nobility? Pharisees? He ate with tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, the overlooked, the downtrodden, the depressed, the anxious. He ate with people like us. So you have an invitation to this feast and all the delicacies of heaven are yours in Christ. He is a generous king. Now there's something I'd like you to think about regarding this mountain that we've been talking about. Um, On this mountain, that is Mount Zion, the Lord of hosts will make a feast. Mount Zion uh, was an ancient way of referring to Jerusalem. It was an actual place in Jerusalem for a time. And Jerusalem was originally a Jebusite fortress. So it was, a, it was a pagan city. It was not originally um, Jewish or Hebrew or Israelite. David became king and went and conquered that city. And it became called the city of David. And that's our first real reference to Mount Zion in the Bible, is when David conquered Mount Zion. And do you guys remember how David conquered Mount Zion? Do you remember, William? Um, just barely. Just barely. It was after that, but that's good. David conquered Zion, this fortified city, by sneaking in through the waterways. And he came up right in the middle of the city and defeated it from the inside out. That's where we get Mount Zion. So we should not be surprised that if death came into our world by Adam and Eve eating that death will die by eating. Jesus is the better King David. He conquers sin and death subversively from the inside out. So we should not be surprised that Jesus defeats death by dying. There is plenty of opportunity for mourning and sadness and grief and seriousness in this world. But if this is true then there is every reason in the world for us to be happy in Christ and sometimes to have a feast. So let's decide together this morning, April 3rd, our first Sunday morning as a church, to not live like the outcome of the war is undecided. Let's live like the king is on his throne because he is. You can be happy in Christ because he is the Lord of the feast. 
Now, big kids, you, uh, you have binders, and if you're doing the worksheets, there's a section in the worksheet that says, what should I think, do, and be? And if you want to write in the think section, remember Jesus won. He's already won. That's the Lord of the feast. Point number two is the Lord of death. This is from verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. So in Isaiah's day, it was not uncommon at all to personify death. Uh, think about you know, how the Greeks would talk about Thanatos. Every culture did this. Um, there were Ugaritic legends, an ancient Near Eastern culture. Ugaritic legends about this death like he was a god. And death was a god with an insatiable appetite. He was hungry. And he went around devouring everyone and everything he could get his hands on. And he was never filled, so much so that he went and started trying to devour the gods in the Ugaritic legends. Canaanite legends, they called their god Mote. And Mote had his lower lip on the earth and his upper lip in the heavens. Mote gaped his maw and swallowed everything in existence up. That was how everyone in this time perceived death. Hungry? You're just a, just a morsel for him. And Isaiah flips the script. Death with his unquenchable appetite will himself be swallowed up by God. Remember the gospel in Philippians? Jesus' glad humility and obedience to God for his glory and our joy. So, so Paul's saying that the gospel is that Jesus set aside his good at his expense for our good and God's glory. And that's exactly what's happening here. We get to swallow the fine meats and the well-refined wine. God swallows death. And he did it willingly. I read this earlier this week. I had never thought of it in this way. Someone pointed out, Jesus is the only person to ever choose death. Plenty of humans have, with great bravery and nobility, chosen the time and means and place and all that of their death, right? Think martyrs choosing to not um, turn their back on God, and they know they're walking to their death. That's brave and noble, but everyone dies. They're not choosing death. They're choosing when to die. Jesus chose death. He was in the form of God. And he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped after. And Jesus didn't just experience death like we all do. He didn't just pass into death and just be another tally mark on death's wall. He didn't nibble, he consumed it. He gobbled it up, it's gone. If death is like a venomous snake that bites everybody, Jesus was bitten, but then he defanged that snake, took the sting out of death once for all. There's no more venom in its bite. So, if that's true, and it is, 
you can be courageous in Christ because he's the Lord of death. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. So there's a covering and there's a veil. What's that about? There are two ideas at play with each other here. The first idea is the wrapping or, or the covering. Isaiah is saying death is like grave clothes. We're all wrapped up, bound, entangled in it. All peoples, all nations are entangled in this spiritual grave clothes and we cannot claw our way out. So John chapter 11, 10 or 11, Lazarus, 11, isn't it? John chapter 11, um, Lazarus dies, friend of Jesus, four days in the grave. He goes to the tomb and he calls in for Lazarus to come out. And he does, which is remarkable. <laughs> Lazarus waddles out, wrapped up like a mummy in grave clothes. And his friends have to go unwrap him and disentangle him from this grave clothes that he couldn't get himself out of. Now, when Jesus rose from the dead, where were his grave clothes? Folded. folded. Neatly folded up on that cold slab that they laid him on. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, death no longer entangled. He did not escape from death. He engulfed it. He conquered. He got the keys to death and Hades. So he took those old grave clothes and folded them up and set them aside because he will not be needing those anymore. That's the first idea, the covering. The second idea is the veil. It's the idea of darkness. John says in chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it or cannot comprehend it, depending on your translation. Since Adam and Eve let the cat out of the bag, so to speak, let death in, we've been engulfed in a darkness. It's been night for so long. And darkness touches everything. It gets everywhere into every nook and cranny. You know, if you turn all the lights off in a room, there's no bright spot autonomously shining to fight back the darkness. Darkness is ubiquitous. When it's dark, it's dark. It's the absence of light. And death is like that. It affects everything. Nothing is left unmangled by death's cold fingers. So when death came, our very hearts grew cold to God. Our bodies began to fail and decay. Grief came with death. And we've said so many subnatural goodbyes to people we love. And even the ground was cursed. Death worked its way into the soil so that weeds and thorns would come out when we tried to wrestle our food from it. So you might say, well, if Jesus has defeated death, why is this all still happening? Well, Jesus really did defeat death by dying on the cross. So now death is in its final throws. It's lost its sting, but it's thrashing about, but not forever. It's like the cross is the final nail in death's coffin, and the resurrection is our assurance that one day death will lie still in its grave. 
It'll stop twitching. Think of this like the movement from night to day. We've been in night since Genesis 3. But when is the darkest part of the night? Yeah, right before the dawn. The darkest part of the night is the Son of God hanging on a cross. And when he rose from the dead, I think the sky began to glow. You know that moment just before the sun comes up over the hills where everything starts to just kind of turn yellow and rose-colored? And when the king returns, the sun is going to spring up over those hills. Death will die. The dawn is the death of the darkness. And that sun will never set again. Yeah. So you can be courageous because he is the Lord of death. And kids, if you're doing your worksheet, that's the B. Be brave in Jesus. All right. Last point. Point number three. Jesus is the Lord of healing. Let me read from verse eight. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Now kids, if you're doing your worksheet again, this is the last bit, what to do. Go to Jesus for healing. Go to Jesus for healing. That's a word for the grown-ups too. Uh, in the Star Wars series, The Mandalorian, you know I had to reference Star Wars or Lord of the Rings today. It's going to be Star Wars this time. Save Lord of the Rings for next week. In The Mandalorian, there's a character called Queel. And he finds the main character when he's um, down on his luck and really needs help. And Queel says, I will help you. I have spoken. That becomes his catchphrase, I have spoken. As if to say, let's not debate this. It's certain. I've made up my mind. I will do it. I have spoken. The Lord is not suggesting that one day he might comfort us. That one day he might heal us a little bit. He's making a promise. I will swallow up death forever. I will wipe away all tears. I will remove your reproach. I have spoken. We can put our feet down on that. It's beyond debate. It's beyond doubt. You can bank on it. The Lord has spoken. Now, there's two aspects to this healing, to this promise that we need to get at. There's tears and there's reproach. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. It doesn't say the Lord God will send messengers or friends to wipe away tears from faces. It's not going to be angels with tissues. The wording is careful. The wording is intimate. God will not just snap his fingers and you'll magically feel better. Heaven could be like that. We could get to the resurrection and just feel great immediately. But the wording is slow and personal. And God will come from person to person to person and wipe your tears caused by your sorrows from your face. So where do you have sorrow? Where do you have shame? 
that's the spot, he's going to heal you in your deepest wounds. Death has left so many wounds and so many scars. And when you see Jesus face to face, and you will, he is going to heal everyone. Death has touched us with its cold hands and chilled our hearts to God and each other. And I fight that every day. And Jesus will lay his nail-scarred hands on those cold places and warm them with the blaze of his life. And death has left dark corners in our hearts, corners of shame and doubt. And Jesus will shine his light into our hearts and banish the dark forever. Not long now. Come, Lord Jesus. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. I didn't know what reproach was this week when I was studying this. I thought it's synonymous with shame. It's not. It turns out reproach is like the visible evidence of our shame. Reproach is the visible evidence of our shame. It's the cheating husband caught with lipstick on his collar. His shame is the cheating. His stain is his reproach. To our shame, we have betrayed our king again and again. All of us. And our shame has left its mark on us, our stain on the world around us. And Jesus so thoroughly heals us from our sin and shame that he even removes the stain of our cheating from our collars. He heals even the land that we abuse. To our shame, we let death into this world by our sin. We invited it to make a wreck of our house. And what greater reproach then, what greater visible evidence of our shame do we have than the fact that our bodies get put in the ground to decay at the end of 70, 80 years. We were created to rule over the ground. And because we sinned, it now rules over us, every one of us. So in a sense, our bodies are the reproach on the earth. Jesus will remove the reproach from the earth. We are going to stand up from our graves. Paul says in Philippians, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Not long now. You will be healed, body and soul. And we will stand up with Jesus on this earth that doesn't even remember the effects of our sin and shame. So you can press on toward the resurrection because he is the Lord of healing. I'd like to invite the band to come up. We'll sing uh, in a couple songs, O death, where is your sting? 
Oh hell, where is your victory? Oh church, come stand in the light. The glory of God has defeated the night. Death is dying. Jesus is on his throne. The day is dawning. So come stand in the light with the risen Christ. Come to Jesus and he will put to death the death in you. And you will live with him. Please stand and I'll pray and we'll sing. Lord Christ, we praise you for your kindness, your bravery, your goodness. We praise you that you're gentle with us and fierce with our enemy. You've won, and we're so happy to be your people. Amen.